Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. Politics and Policy, USAP. In January 2024, I spoke to Dr. Ashley Tellis, the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and a Senior Fellow of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ashley Tellis' work specializes in international security and U.S. foreign and defense policy, with a special focus on Asia and the Indian subcontinent. His latest book, Strategic Asia, Reshaping Economic Interdependence in the Indo-Pacific, examines the shifts occurring in the global trading system and their implications to the strategic environment in Asia. We spoke about the recent history of the U.S.'s engagement with China and how the U.S.'s strategy towards China has shifted across recent presidencies. We also discussed policies of decoupling and de-risking relationships with China in the United States and by other countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Could you please give us a brief outline of how the U.S. has engaged with China economically in recent decades and the sort of risk-reward calculus that has been made by U.S. policymakers in this area? Thank you. So I think we need to go back to when the United States and China reestablished relations uh, in the late Cold War period. Uh, This began with President Nixon's famous trip to Beijing, and it set the stage for diplomatic and political engagement at that time. About a decade later, the doors were opened uh, for the earliest forms of economic engagement. And American companies began to think of China uh, in the first instance as a large market, but in time uh, began to look at China as a possible production center uh, for manufacturing, for export worldwide. And that effort really took off after China joined the WTO in 2000 because it regularized the character of the U.S.-China trade relationship. And the idea was very simple. The United States had hoped that strong economic ties between the two countries uh, would lead to economic benefits for both. It would help China move away from the mass poverty that had characterized the revolutionary period And it would create opportunities for American business uh, to make a tidy profit by uh, using China's skilled but low-cost labor uh, to manufacture goods. Now, the assumption at that time was that this would be extremely beneficial to the United States. But I don't think very much thought was given to the consequences of this relationship on the domestic political economy of the United States. In other words, the sectors of the economy that did best as a result of the relationship with China was essentially U.S. capital. U.S. companies moved manufacturing from the United States to China in a substantial way. The West followed. China used that to become the new workshop of the world become a uh, manufacturing and an export powerhouse. And in the process, of course, that led to the deindustrialization of the United States itself. But I think early on, 
that was not a consequence that was foreseen. And it was certainly not a consequence that the U.S. was prepared for. Instead, policymakers, especially during the Clinton administration, soon after China joined the WTO, believed that strong economic ties essentially would lead to democratization in China. It would lead to the creation of a new cosmopolitan middle class. And China would grow, but it would not be powerful enough to challenge the balance of power in the international system. Now, in all three counts, the U.S. has been disappointed. And so we are now at a juncture where we are looking at the next stage in the U.S.-China relationship because the past stage, which I just described, which began in bits and pieces in the late 1990s, took off after 2000, I think is now slowly coming to an end. So what about China's perspective? How have Chinese governments seen the risks and rewards associated with closer economic ties, maybe even interdependence with the United States? So China adopted from the very beginning a very strategic approach to the issue of interdependence. For the United States, interdependence was primarily about economic gains. The expectation was that trade would leave both countries better off And therefore, by definition, trade was good for both. And that was pretty much the neoliberal consensus, uh, especially during the Clinton administration, but even thereafter. China, in contrast, had a different view. Uh, China is a state that is controlled by the Communist Party. And while they looked at interdependence with the United States as an opportunity to leaven China's technology base, as a chance to make China a true economic power, uh, the Communist Party was very careful to ensure that whatever liberalization took place in the Chinese economy, it was a liberalization that was embedded in a larger structure of state control. And so what the state did was that it created an open market essentially for the production of goods but it controlled the distribution of many factors of production. So capital was controlled pretty much by the state. Land was controlled pretty much by the state. And while the Chinese state was freely allowed the Chinese people to exercise their entrepreneurial skills and become rich as a result, the state maintained absolute control over the terms under which Western business was allowed to operate in China. So to give you a very simple example, when Western companies went to China to do manufacturing, it was rare for them to essentially have wholly owned subsidiaries in China. It was an important requirement laid down by the Communist Party that Western companies would have to operate in China through the means of a joint venture with a Chinese partner or a Chinese entity. And that became the bridge which allowed China to get technology from the West, to use Western capital when required, while bringing to the table its own high-skilled labor. And that was essentially uh, the deal that was struck. So the Chinese participation in, quote-unquote, the open global economy 
was essentially a strategic participation which was designed not simply to maximize consumer welfare, as we often think in the West, but was fundamentally designed to, even as it maximized consumer welfare, to increase state power. And so the Chinese approach to interdependence was in many ways a mercantilist approach to interdependence because it focused heavily on ensuring that whatever economic transformation was taking place in China not only benefited the Chinese people, but actually increased the capacity of the state to pursue its own power political interests. And that was the challenge that China then in time began to pose uh, to, to many Western economies. So moving back to the US now, how would you say the United States strategy towards China has shifted across recent presidencies? We, we've seen a lot of changing rhetoric between, say, for example, President Trump and, and President Biden. Have these shifts been gradual or would you say there's been more sudden breaks in policy? So let me start by just describing the nature of the shifts first, and then we'll address the question of the tempo and the sequence. I think what has clearly changed at the US end is that the old belief that markets could be left to themselves to determine the character of US-China economic relations, that belief is dead. Because there is a growing view in the United States that that laissez-faire approach to free trade has not served U.S. interests. It has not served U.S. economic interests because of the threat that it has posed, especially to labor. And it has not, uh, it has not advanced U.S. geopolitical interests because it has allowed the Chinese state to freely use the benefits of trade and apply those benefits essentially to military purposes. So the view that you can have an unfettered market relationship between the two countries, that view is really been the casualty of China's dramatic rise in power and the challenge that is posed to the United States. Now, the U.S. found it very hard to come to terms with this reality. Already in the Bush administration, which is in the first decade of the new century, there was growing anxiety about the rise in Chinese power. But even the Bush presidency did not have an easy solution of managing the contradiction between its commitments to free markets, which was the liberal strain in the administration, and the fears of China's rising capacities, which was the realist strain in the administration. And so the Bush administration was hoping that it could find ways of dealing with this problem, but was distracted terribly by the 9-11 attacks, the global war on terror, and ultimately the invasion of Iraq. So by the time President Obama comes into office, the concerns about China's economic and political impact began to grow in intensity. But President Obama attempted to manage the problem by negotiating new arrangements for liberalized access to the Chinese market, which didn't really work very well, while trying to keep the relationship with China on an even keel. In the last two years of his second term, however, it became quite obvious to him that China was going to remain 
a mercantilist state and that the Chinese efforts at internal reform, which at least, you know, some leaders in China had hoped they could engineer, was not likely to deliver. Uh, the best intentions of the Chinese to have more internal economic openness uh, were unlikely to uh, come to pass. And at the same time, we began to see a perceptible increase in Chinese assertiveness, particularly in terms of its relationship with Japan, its relationship with the uh, neighbors in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea and so on and so forth. And so it was in the last two years of the Obama administration that the attitude to China began to change and China began to be seen increasingly as a rival and not just simply the partner that it was supposed to be in, in the years before. Of course, it took the arrival of President Trump to change uh, the character of the relationship completely. And President Trump saw China as a straightforward economic threat because he held China responsible for the deindustrialization of the United States. And he saw China as a straightforward strategic threat. And therefore, with a great flourish, the national security strategy that was promulgated by the Trump administration very transparently stated what many Americans previously were only willing to admit sotto voce. And that promulgation essentially stated that China, and to a lesser degree Russia, are great power competitors of the United States, and we are divided by divisions over economic management, we are divided by divisions over geopolitical interests, and we are divided by ideological fissures between our societies. And so Trump essentially uh, made public and made transparent what many had suspected was coming anyway. And so to my mind, the Trump administration really represents the breaking point when the old U.S. consensus that China could be a partner of some sort uh, finally breaks down decisively. In Strategic Asia, reshaping economic independence in the Indo-Pacific, you write extensively about recent developments in, in decoupling among various countries and regions. Could you talk a little bit more about the trends and sort of divergences you see emerging in this decoupling process? So the fascinating thing that has become very clear over the last 30 years is that China is not simply the center of global manufacturing and the most important exporting power in the world, but is actually the center of a gigantic regional production system where there are huge global value chains which essentially are centered on China but have tentacles that extend throughout the East Asian region. And almost every country in East Asia and in Southeast Asia either sees China as a source of critical raw materials or as a center of manufacturing from which they benefit, or as a market for their own products. And because global value chains now define the character of production in the international economy, where components are produced in diverse places, then move many times across borders and are integrated in a single location 
before they export it to the world around. What China has essentially done is that it's become the center of a gigantic spider's nest. And so even though there are many countries in East Asia, Japan being a great example, Taiwan being another, South Korea being another, that have real concerns about China's geopolitical trajectory and the threat that China poses to their interests, they are unable to walk away from the investments that they have made in China for many decades. Because to walk away from those investments would be to suffer extraordinary economic losses. And so even though they recognize that they do not want to be overly dependent on China, and they certainly do not want to be hostages to Chinese policy, they find themselves in a situation where they have to trade geopolitical security against economic security. And that is the heart of the tension that is preventing them from peeling away from China in a way that they sometimes might have liked. And so the bottom line is they recognize that they are vulnerable, but there is very little that they can do to remedy that vulnerability in any radical way. And so what we are beginning to see is some modest efforts at diversification. Where for, and Japan is a great example. For every dollar invested in China, Japan wants to invest another dollar in some other location where its investments would not be so vulnerable. But even that is still a drop in the bucket compared to the sunk investments that almost all the major Asian powers have in China today. And so diversification is proving to be far more difficult than people thought when the early talk of diversification was first aired. So what is the difference between um, decoupling and, and, and de-risking? And in what ways does understanding the distinction between these two help us to better consider and understand, think about recent US policy, especially towards China? So decoupling is a word that really is associated with the Trump administration. And I think it was an unfortunate choice because it operated on Trump's presumption that the United States could simply sever all economic links with China and that it would come out ahead as a result of that severance. And so for the few years that Trump was in office, every now and then he publicly announced that his goal was to cut all economic links with China. Of course, that was a fiction because anyone who thought seriously about the character of the US-China relationship realized that the US could not walk away. We have a trade relationship that runs into somewhere between $600 and $700 billion annually in two-way trade. And no country, not even a country as rich as as the United States, can simply walk away from a relationship of such density and magnitude. So when the, Obama, when the Biden administration uh, came into office, they realized that decoupling was a chimera, that there was no way in which we would be able to decouple from China. But we did not want the extent of the dependencies that we had on China historically. And so what the Biden administration has started doing is first using a new term. They jettisoned decoupling and replaced it with de-risking. And the idea that de-risking encapsulates is we're not going to cut off ties with China across the board, but in certain critical areas, 
especially in the areas of high technology, in the areas that impact national defense, and possibly in the areas that have connections with public health. The United States was going to look for supplementary solutions, essentially insurance policies that would minimize our current dependency on China. And so de-risking in the Biden administration's jargon is essentially taking out insurance policies where the United States would make some investments in critical areas in countries outside of China so that we are never held hostage to the Chinese if our relations ever devolve into conflict. And the COVID-19 crisis really brought this uh, problem to a boil because the U.S. realized that on many issues of public health, from the simplest things like masks to the more complicated things like vaccines, we depended on China for many of the ingredients that went into the making of these products. And I think most policymakers in the U.S. today feel that it is simply imprudent uh, to have critical areas of your national economy uh, completely dependent on the production system in another country, especially another country that you might find yourself in conflict with at some point down the line. And so de-risking is really an effort uh, to create a safety valve, uh, to create a band of reassurance by having other sources of supply beyond those located in China itself. So just as a a kind of a slight sidebar question, is this sort of de-risking that you're talking about, is that essentially the same thing as what's been termed, we've heard a lot about friendshoring in the last few few years. Is that sort of a similar concept or are they distinct? And, and is friendshoring going to be something that we're going to be seeing more of and is it a viable strategy going forward? So I think friendshoring is a subset of de-risking. De-risking essentially says critical supply chains either have to be moved outside of China entirely, if that is possible, or Alternative supply chains have to be constructed without any connections to China. That's the broad concept of de-risking. So that the recipient country always has access to that technology or that product without having to depend on China in a crisis. Friendshoring is one specific kind of de-risking. And it's a concerted effort made by governments to shift investments from China to some third country, which happens to be a friend of the United States. And it does not necessarily have to be a formal ally, but it has to be a country that China does not control or has dominant influence over. The theory of the case being that if there is a crisis, the US and its partners will be able to rely on a resilient alternative to whatever supply chains may continue to exist in China. Now, unfortunately for the United States, friendshoring has proven to be extremely difficult because most decisions to leave China are really made by private entities at the level of the firm. Those are not decisions made by governments. And short of war, governments often lack the authorities to coerce private entities to leaving China and moving somewhere else. And so at least so far, French shoring has ended up being more of a rhetorical device 
a statement of U.S. intentions rather than an actual movement. I don't think there has been any major success uh, that French shoring can claim so far. But for reasons that have little to do with geopolitics, there are many Western companies in China which are increasingly finding the environment difficult to operate in. And therefore, as part of their own business strategies, are beginning to think of at least some alternatives uh, to the Chinese market. And if those sentiments gather momentum, then you might begin to see something that resembles French shoring, even though it is a shift in production that is not directed by the state. But only time will tell. We're nearly out of time, so I'll just ask for this for the, for the final word, if I may. Can and should the U.S. do more to encourage its partners to diversify away from their connections with China, the kind of connections you've been talking about? I am personally ambivalent about this because I truly believe that open markets uh, provide the best benefits, at least at an aggregate level, uh, for all parties, China and the United States included. But I'm sensitive to the challenges that are now being posed by geopolitical competition. And therefore, I reluctantly, because it runs against the grain of my own uh, personal sort of convictions about the value of free trade and open markets, I've reluctantly come to the view that we must, at least in some narrow areas, and to my mind, the principal area is those technologies that bear on national defense, or those technologies for which U.S. dominance is critical if we have to maintain our stature as a hegemonic power in the global system. I think it is these two criteria that I would use to justify a narrow decoupling from China or a narrow de-risking from China. And anything that the U.S. government can do to encourage uh, the seeding of alternative supply chains in these two narrow areas, national defense and those sunrise sectors of the global economy where it is imperative that the United States maintain innovation or technological advantage. In these two areas, I would uh, reluctantly uh, admit that the U.S. government ought to take a more statist interventionist approach in order to protect its own equities in what is clearly a coming geopolitical competition. Well, that's a great place for us to finish. Uh, Ashley Tellis, thank you so much for speaking to The Ballpark today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Ashley Tellis for joining us in this episode. For more information about the Failing US Center, you can go to our website at lsc.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states. On Twitter and Instagram, we're lsc underscore us, and on Facebook, we're LSE United States. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. A theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk or you can send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And please tell your friends about us.
The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.